I love staying in hotels. Getting away from it all, leaving for a couple days and being with the one you love. Whether that's just you going by yourself, or your parents, or your besties, or a romantic interest. There's nothing quite like planning a romantic getaway, spending your week daydreaming, packing your favorite outfit, and your fanciest underthings, a bottle of that one wine you both discovered that you love that one night at that one restaurant. Maybe you'll end your evening in the hot tub. Maybe you'll end it with a little nightcap in the hotel lounge. But what you don't expect at the end of your evening is murder. I'm Kelly Barron's Brink, and this is the story of the Amana Axe Murders on True Crime IRL. True crime in real life. On Friday evening, September 12, 1980, 22-year-old Rose Burkert and her 32-year-old boyfriend, Roger Atkinson, hopped into his car and started on their 270-mile road trip from their hometown of St. Joseph, Missouri. They were heading north, destined for the Amana Holiday Inn along Interstate 80 near Williamsburg, Iowa, which is near the college town of Iowa City. They were hoping for a romantic getaway in this little village referred to as the Amana Colonies. As a young single mom, you can imagine that this weekend away was extra special for Rose who was busy with life. Not only was she busy caring for her young child every day, but she was also a full-time nursing student. This was going to be a weekend of freedom with the man she loved. Oh, wait, I forgot one important detail here. Roger was married and it wasn't to Rose. The 32-year-old telephone repairman and U.S. Navy veteran had a wife at home. Marcella was her name, and Roger had told her that he would be away working all weekend. He was planning on working all right, (laughs) if you know what I mean. Sorry. (laughs) Rose and Roger met when he was doing an installation at Rose's house. And by installation, I mean he took his... Oh, never mind. Sorry. Back to the romance. In September, the weather would have been flawless. With green fields, sunny skies, temperatures of about 72 degrees during the day, and an early fall magic in the air. This quaint town is full of Amish influences. Old-fashioned bakeries and shops, and delicious home-cooked meals from family-style restaurants. It really is the perfect place for a romantic and laid-back weekend for two. 
They arrived just in time to have a delicious meal together to start their weekend. But first, they needed to check in to their hotel. To their disappointment, the on-duty hotel concierge told them that the hotel was booked solid due to an area mortician's conference. Wait, a mortician's conference? What? I bet that party was dead. <laughs> Just kidding, I'm sure it was really lively. Stop me if you've heard this one. What does a necrophiliac mortician do at the end of a long day of work? Oh boy, do I even want to know? He cracks open a cold one. <laughs> Rose and Roger had their hearts set on this night of romance at the Holiday Inn. So they begged the front desk clerk to check again to see if there were any openings at all. Well, they were in luck. There'd been a cancellation and a room had opened up for the pair of lovers. It was fate. The couple received a key to room 260 at about 7.40 p.m. and they proceeded to party. Proceed to party. Proceed Roger brought his young girlfriend to a nice hotel, not some seedy motel. It wasn't a rent-by-the-hour spot, it wasn't the Bates Motel, it was a nice place where people held conventions and wedding receptions. The rooms were only accessible from the inside, there were no room doors that went on the outside of the hotel. The couple retired to their room, shut the door, and turned on the TV. They ordered room service at around 9pm. And then, well... I guess you can leave the rest to your imagination. Rose and Roger would not be seen again until the next day. Shortly after lunchtime the next day, a housekeeper arrived at room 260 and knocked on the door several times. She got no answer. She tried the door, but she found it locked. The housekeeper went to go get a passkey from the hotel manager and returned to the room. She opened the door and she first saw feet. Thinking they were asleep, she peered in a bit further. The TV still blared from the previous night. And that's when she saw the horrific Wednesday, June the 11th, the Chicago School Board budget is slashed by $1 million. There was blood splattered all across the headboard, on the walls, soaked into the carpet, everywhere. She slammed the door shut and ran for the manager. Once the manager saw the grisly crime scene, he immediately called the Iowa County Sheriff's Department. Both Rose and Roger lay face down on the bed. The backs of their skulls were slashed and completely caved in by repeated blows from either an axe or a hatchet of some sort. Roger Atkinson also had several of his fingers severed, indicating that he had tried to protect his head from the blows. Rose Burkert was found fully clothed 
and the killer had covered her up with a bed sheet. But Atkinson's body was different. He was left totally exposed, and he was only wearing a pair of shorts. The Iowa County Medical Examiner said that both Rose and Roger died of acute blood loss and brain injuries. Both victims suffered lacerations to the scalp, skull, and brain. The room showed no signs of forced entry. Two chairs sat next to the bed, indicating the killer may have carried on a conversation with the couple or even watched them prior to the slaying. Atkinson's wallet was on the floor below the chairs, and it appeared the murderer had rifled through it, scattering its contents across the carpet. Rose Burkert's wallet, however, seemed to be untouched. Evidence also indicated that the killer had at one point put his feet up on the desk. He had carved a piece of soap and used it to scrawl one word on the bathroom mirror. And that word was... This. This. What did this mean? What was the significance? Investigators also found a bloody towel in the bathroom containing unidentified male DNA and, oddly, a big sloppy glob of toothpaste had been squirted into the bathtub. The scene was described as pretty gruesome and complete overkill. Rumors swirled in both Missouri, where the couple lived, and Iowa, where they were killed. Some suspected Rose Burkert's ex-boyfriend, Danny Burton, whom she'd kicked out of her home due to his alleged drug use. He'd been stalking her in the weeks before the murder, and Burkert had filed a complaint with the Andrew County, Missouri Sheriff's Department and told them if she ended up dead, it would be because of my ex. Remember that Rose was a young single mother. So, being alone and nervous about the situation, she'd gotten a dog for protection. The stalking continued, and trigger warning. Dog lovers, you need to scroll forward about 15 seconds. She came home one day to find her beloved pet butchered, tied up, and left hanging in front of her home. The ex-boyfriend had an alibi, and he passed a polygraph test. But polygraphs are crap! Our slogan is, if it's no Scottish, it's crap! And any heartless dick who could do that to a helpless, wonderful little doggo would probably be enough of a sociopath to be able to pass a polygraph, am I right? However... He may have been a giant asshole, but authorities did not think Danny Burton was Rose and Roger's killer. Rumors also circulated that the killer may have been Roger's uncle. Because Roger's uncle wasn't just your run-of-the-mill crazy Uncle Charlie who told inappropriate jokes at the Thanksgiving table. Oh, no, no, no. Roger's uncle was none other than Charles Ray Hatcher, 
a serial killer who'd recently escaped from a Nebraska mental health center. And I could not have thought up a better name for a serial killer if I tried. Hatcher? Come on! You can't make this stuff up. Good ol' Uncle Charlie was an American serial killer who confessed to having murdered 16 people between 1969 and 1982. Hatcher was in and out of prison most of his life, mostly on charges of auto theft and assault. He spent time in several mental health facilities. His father was a bootlegger, an ex-convict, and an abusive alcoholic. Hatcher was bullied in school, and in turn, he bullied his classmates. When he was only six years old, Charles lost his oldest brother in 1935, and his father left the family shortly after that. His mother would go on to remarry numerous times. Hatcher would spend his young adulthood in and out of prison, stealing vehicles, burglarizing, and wreaking havoc on everyone he encountered. He became known for repeatedly breaking out of jail and going on the run, and soon he developed a reputation as the most notorious criminal in Northwest Missouri since Jesse James. His crimes became more and more violent and disturbing as time went on. He kidnapped, raped, and murdered children as young as four years old. All the while, he pled for mental help and for therapy, but all his pleas were denied. In 1981, Hatcher was arrested in Des Moines, Iowa after a knife fight. He gave police the fake name Richard Clark. You know, like Dick Clark from Dick Clark's New Year's Rockin' Eve? An American bandstand? Hey, at least Uncle Charlie had a sense of humor. In his Oxygen Channel series, The DNA of Murder, host Paul Holes, you know, the famous private investigator, the web sleuth, and TV host, discusses this case and Charles Hatcher with police who were working on the case. Now, isn't there, I mean, you know, part of the um, intrigue with this case, for lack of a better word, is this somewhat distant relative, is it Charles Hatcher? Yes. Who's the, the serial predator, serial killer. Yes. And so there was some question as to whether or not this Charles Hatcher could have come and killed Roger and Rose. Floyd, Roger's father-in-law, had a brother named Charles who is, was a convicted serial killer. He's a great, another great suspect. Yeah. He was actually free during this time, but he was in, I think, Nebraska. We tracked him to Nebraska. He was under an alias and working at a restaurant. And that's what I, I saw in the, the, the case files. It yeah. looked like his you know, physical proximity was nowhere yeah. near where this case occurred. Right. Yeah. And it seems like he's pretty solidly placed there. Yeah. The interesting to me about Charles Hatcher, one of the cases he was convicted of was a 1969 case of a boy out in my jurisdiction, William yeah. Freeman in Antioch. Yeah. 
I remember that. Yeah, and at, when I was uh, kind of exploring that case, if you look into that case, one of the infamous serial killers, Otis Toole, was thought to possibly have been involved in that case, but it turned out it was this Charles Hatcher. And now, you know, many years later, here I am in yeah. Iowa, listening about this guy that I found out about in one of the cases that I had. Right. Now, one of the interesting parts of this is the decor of this hotel they used a lot of antique farm implements as wall hangings. So one of the ideas that had come along was, did, did the uh, murder weapon, was it already perhaps there? Because there were so many of them that they could have actually left with it. And it just makes you wonder how prepared might have some, somebody have been if they perhaps took a murder weapon from the hallway. Now, my understanding, uh, the sheriff's office, I met with the sheriff there, and he was talking about this place used to have some tools hanging on the wall. Yes. Now, where in the hotel were these tools? Well, this picture will show you they were all over the lobby on the walls, and then there were some larger pieces that were down the hall. And then how far down the hall did the... They would have gone pretty well clear down the hall. So the, even both sides had different types of things. Can, can, can you walk me down there? Sure. Take a look. Any of these tools could have been used to kill. Was that just a matter of convenience for the offender where he's now maybe in a rage and he's walking, getting ready to confront Rose and or Roger and happens to see there's something that looks like a hatchet right here on the wall. Thank you very much and walks into room 260 and now he's armed with something that he didn't even plan on having with him. But you can see there's some hooks along here where there was probably something hanging or even on the beams here that okay. go up, you'd have had some pieces hanging along there as well. So would like an old time hatchet be something that would be on the wall or something similar to that? Something similar, yeah. yes. So were, there was no tools like back in the hallways where the rooms are? Nothing back in the hallways. Right, and, and obviously this is a thoroughfare to get back to the rooms. To get to the back rooms, yes. Okay. There were implements on the walls as decoration in the hallways. Oh, yeah. In the common areas. So some of those items were actually checked to see if they were the murder weapon. And so that's what this is about. Oh, wow, look at that. If this were to go into the skull or into the neck, you're, you're talking about a near decapitation just from a single blow. Right. Um, versus what I'm seeing in the autopsy photos is much more consistent with a shorter handled weapon like the hatchet. And right now, this has pretty much been eliminated. Correct. There, there was no trace of blood. In his trip to Iowa, Paul Holes also paid a visit to Roger Atkinson's widowed wife, and they discussed her unique family tree. Now, what about, um, is it Charles or Charlie? Charles. Charles. Did you know him well? No. No. Was this your dad's brother or your mother's brother? My dad's brother. Okay. And he's been described as a serial killer. Yes, there's yeah. a book about him. How many people did he kill? I think he admitted to like 10 or 15, I think, maybe. That must be an odd position to be in, that you're, you're related to somebody who's a serial killer. Yes, it's not pleasant. Yeah. Does anybody give you any a hard time about that? Yes, once in a while. Yeah. Still today? Yeah. I mean, you, you experience the loss of Roger. You find out that he's having an affair at the time that he's killed. Um, 
and now your extended family is also a focus of the investigation. This has got to be just an ongoing burden for you. Yes. In 1984, as he faced a second life sentence for another murder he committed, Hatcher requested he be given the death penalty, but that request was denied. Four days later, Hatcher hung himself in his cell at the Missouri State Penitentiary in Jefferson City. And that closes the door on Crazy Uncle Charlie. killed a lot of people, but Rose and Roger were most likely not two of them. But another interesting link in that same family tree is Roger's wife, Marcella, stated that she was always quite scared of her father and that he had quite a temper. She stated that she always thought he could have been capable of killing her husband Roger out of rage he felt regarding his son-in-law carrying on an affair outside of marriage to his daughter. In Marcella's mind, it's definitely a possibility. About 400 people, including hotel guests and employees from Iowa and other states, were questioned regarding their stay at the hotel. Requests were also being sent out to other state law enforcement officials in an effort to locate any similar crimes that would have taken place. Agents from Missouri and Illinois were assisting in the case. Rose and Roger's family and friends believed that their murders were somehow connected to their extramarital affair. But some investigators think they could have been murdered by a potential serial killer. Agents in Galesburg, Illinois were actually investigating a similar murder committed less than three months earlier, on June 25, 1980. William Kyle a 28-year-old traveling salesman was bludgeoned to death with a sharp tool in room 217 at the Sheridan Motor Inn in Galesburg, Illinois. The hotel was located right off a major highway, Interstate 74. Kyle, who was turning 26 years old just the next day, had stayed at the hotel weekly, spending the night before he went on sales calls in Macomb and Rushville. He was happily married and successfully employed. Kyle had sustained a dozen blows from a sharp, heavy object to his head, neck, and shoulders. Like Rose and Roger's murder, there was no sign of forced entry in the room. It seemed as though Kyle had let someone in the room and then was overpowered. Kyle was found slumped over the side of the bed face down, and a comforter was covering his upper torso. Beneath a chair in the room, the contents of Kyle's wallet had been emptied just exactly like Roger Atkinson's wallet had been emptied in the Iowa murder. And just like in Rose and Roger's murder, toothpaste had been squeezed onto the carpet near his body. 
The investigator on William Kyle's case consulted a forensic psychiatrist to gain insight into why an offender would squirt out toothpaste near his victims. And people. In all my years of being a completely true crime-obsessed weirdo, I have never, never in my life heard of this. But apparently for some heroin addicts, that's about the only way they can satisfy themselves. Frequently, heroin addicts develop erectile dysfunction. And so ejaculation simulation is the only way they can achieve sexual gratification. If an addict experiences erectile dysfunction, they will sometimes squeeze toothpaste out as a form of ejaculation simulation. Individuals under the influence of heroin, they often will do, use the toothpaste tube, sort of like penile substitution, and squirt the tube as a, as a simulation of ejaculation. It's a form of sexual gratification because under the influence of heroin, they can't function properly. Oh god, really? I mean, have you ever heard of this? I can't even with this. So they squirt toothpaste out of a tube as if the toothpaste tube is a penis. And the toothpaste is semen. And that's how they achieve sexual gratification. I'm just gonna leave that little tidbit right there for you. Okay, yep, that's all. So there was also another hotel slaying 10 years prior in Meridian, Mississippi that bore a striking resemblance to the other murders. And even though it happened a decade before, it was definitely on their radar because of the similarities. In 1970, Jack McDonald, who was 23 years old, was bludgeoned to death at the Meridian, Mississippi Travel Inn Motel in room 412. He was found bent over the side of the bed, face down, just like William Kyle, and toothpaste had been squeezed into the toilet. His wallet was also missing. Paul Holes had a theory that, between Rose and Roger's case, the Jack McDonald case, and the William Kyle case, these murders were all committed by the same person adding that it could be the work of a serial killer. So the tube of toothpaste in the Kyle case is right there. You have the toothpaste kind of smeared on the carpet at the base of where William Kyle was. Interesting. And supposedly in the 1970 case, the tube, the, the toothpaste had been squirted out into the toilet. Really? And then, of course, Rose and Roger's case, the toothpaste squirted out into the bathtub. Yes. So right now, from my eyes, I think we have three cases related, spanning 10 years. So, multiple witnesses actually placed a confirmed heroin addict at the Sheridan Motor Inn in Galesburg. He was seen in the motel restaurant at the same time as William Kyle, carrying a tool belt from his work on a sugarcane farm in Mississippi. His name was Raimundo Esparza, and he was a vagrant in the area. Esparza was a drifter, a veteran, a drug addict, and an alcoholic. As officers began to dig, 
they uncovered the story of a man who seemed more and more likely to be their murderer. They talked to some of Esparza's girlfriends and his ex-wife, and they found out that he was a very violent person. One thing to note is that, as I mentioned before, Esparza was seen with his tool belt full of tools that he used in his work on the sugarcane farm. Well, there was a bloody outline of a weapon on William Kyle's bedspread. And that weapon appeared to have matched the exact size and shape of a sugarcane knife. There was also one piece of circumstantial evidence that led police on an international search for information. A leather case with metal fingernail clippers manufactured in Europe. Investigators tracked down the manufacturer and found that the case had been issued to a blood bank in California, where they were given away during a two-week period. They were issued nowhere else in the United States, and Esparza happened to be in the area at the time receiving treatment for his mental illness. Esparza was questioned for almost 10 hours, but they had no DNA because that was in a time before DNA evidence was really ever a thing. They had no fingerprints, and they had no confession. There wasn't anything to place Esparza actually in William Kyle's hotel room. And without any of those things, police had no choice but to release Esparza. Police were certain that he was their man, and they sought out an arrest warrant. But the state's attorney denied the request. They only had circumstantial evidence against Esparza, and nothing solid that could lead to a charge. And in 1983, he died. So any DNA evidence and any secrets he had would have been buried along with his body. Years went by, and all three murder cases went cold. But then, in 2008, Galesburg, Illinois police reopened William Kyle's case, hoping that new DNA technology would allow them to finally pin the murder on Raimundo Esparza. They also caught a break when the Veterans Hospital discovered that they still had Esparza's autopsy samples from 1983. They thought they'd hit the jackpot and would finally be able to close this case. Unfortunately, the DNA collected from the crime scene 28 years before had disintegrated, and there was insufficient DNA for analysis. Without DNA, the new officers still attempted to rework Kyle's case with a new set of eyes, and they came up with the same conclusion as the previous investigative team did all those years before. Raimundo Esparza killed William Kyle, but with Esparza dead and buried, maybe they'd never know for sure. But what we do know is that Rose Burkert and Roger Atkinson were killed in the exact same way as William Kyle in 1980 and Jack McDonald in 1970. They all lost their lives in a grisly hotel murder. They were all bludgeoned over the head with an axe or a hatchet on or near the bed. None of these crime scenes showed any signs of forced entry. Their wallets were all rifled through at the crime scene and scattered on the floor. At each scene, the killer left a telltale sign of a possible unique sexual signature with toothpaste squirted out beneath him. 
Was this the work of the transient heroin addict with a violent past, Raimundo Esparza? Maybe. After all, he was definitely linked to both men's murders, having lived in Mississippi where one murder took place, and having been seen in the same hotel where another murder took place. But what about Rose Burkert's and Roger Atkinson's murders? This feels different. The two were having an affair. Did Roger's wife, Marcella, know about it? Was she a scorned woman who needed revenge? Marcella also had a unique cast of characters in her family tree. An angry, intimidating father, a convicted serial killer for an uncle, and Rose also had an angry and violent ex-boyfriend stalking her relentlessly. They always say that when someone is murdered, you should look at those closest to them. Like Occam's razor suggests, the simplest explanation is usually the correct one. While I do believe that Raimundo Esparza is likely the killer of William Kyle and Jack McDonald, I'm just not buying it in the Amana Axe murder case. There are too many simpler explanations here, too many close possibilities that make much more sense than a random axe murderer and being in the wrong place at the wrong time. So who killed Rose Burkert and Roger Atkinson on what was supposed to be a romantic getaway out of town in the Amana colonies? To this day, Rose and Roger's murder still remains unsolved. It's one of Iowa's most mysterious cold cases. I would love to hear your thoughts on this case. Who do you think did it? Do you think it was Raimundo Esparza? Or do you think it was more likely one of the jaded ex-lovers? Someone from the cast of characters in their lives. Comment on Instagram at truecrimeirl. Let me know your thoughts. And go to truecrimeirl.com for more information on these cases. I used a lot of sources in this podcast episode today, and I wanted to take a moment to mention those. I got a lot of my information from iowacoldcases.org, oxygen.com, and the DNA of murder with Paul Holes, the Sioux City Journal, Wikipedia, galesburg.com, and I even listened to an episode of one of my favorite podcasts, Crawl Space, where they talked about the Amana Axe murders. All of the sources I used are mentioned in the podcast podcast notes, so be sure to check those out. This has been True Crime IRL, true crime in real life. I'm your host, Kelly Barron's Brink. Until next time, lock your doors, people. Even if you're in a hotel room, lock those doors. Click that deadbolt, put a chair in front of the door, bury your head under the covers, do whatever you have to do to not get killed. Never answer the door. Actually, just scrap the whole idea. Don't even go to hotels. Actually, just don't go anywhere. Just kidding. Don't live your life like that. But just lock your doors. Lock your doors, people. Bye-bye.